How many of you have flown from Vancouver to Toronto? Quite a few. Okay. The Vancouver-Toronto flight, I've done it many times, we used to live in Toronto, is actually kind of a nice flight. You can almost get two movies in if you start right away, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty relaxing. Now, I was told that if you are on an airplane and the pilot enters all the information of where you're supposed to go and they are off on their instruments by one degree, if you're going from Vancouver to Toronto, you'll end up around Buffalo, New York. A bit of a mistake, but not a horrible, irreversible mistake. You can get in a car, you can rent a car, and in two hours you can be back in Toronto, okay? But if you are going on a long-haul flight, let's say you're going to London, England, and that instrument is off by one degree, you will crash in the ocean. Okay, I tell you this because this is an example of how our wrong thinking about God can be very, very dangerous. We can have wrong thoughts about God and, and have little mistakes and, and correct them. You know how, how you might end up in Buffalo, New York, but then you correct it and you end up in Toronto. But if you are off for the long haul, you will become more and more wrong and you can be in danger of crashing in the ocean. Now, what does this have to do with Exodus 7, verse 8, all the way to 10, verse 29? A huge portion of scripture, okay? We have this huge portion of scripture with these plagues, and you have these little plots, right? Every little one has its thing. We learn about the plague. Pharaoh says, you can go, and then God hardens his heart, and then he says, no. And this happens over and over and over again, right? I know this passage can cause some tension. It can cause some dislike. We don't like thinking about a God who hardens someone's heart. And I want to acknowledge that because I've talked with close friends who are just like, I don't want to think about a God that does that. My God doesn't do that. My God sends his son Jesus to die for our sins. He doesn't harden someone's heart. And there have been times where I'm like, well, that's not my God, right? Like, you have to, you have to be bold here and say, but that, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God in the New Testament. And this God in the Old Testament that we're learning about, he is a God that's in control. And that's what I want to focus on today. We're going to hear it over and over and over again. God is in control. So can you trust his control? Is his control good? Let's learn about his control through the actions in this passage of scripture in Exodus. And we're going to learn about his control through his reasons. And hopefully that can help us to think rightly about God and to trust in his control. Okay? Let's learn about God through the actions of God. Well, let's, I want to remind us a little bit about Pharaoh. Right? We've been hearing Pharaoh or king interchangeable, same thing, right? The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard. But it wasn't just that Pharaoh's hard heart. It was a heritage of hard hearts. Now, when Joseph, way back when, when he got stuck in Egypt, he, he became um, like Pharaoh's right-hand man eventually. He worked alongside Pharaoh. His whole family came there during a famine. And then, years later, in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 9, it says, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came into power. So, second Pharaoh here, right? And this king said, look to his people. 
The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, it wasn't that many weeks ago that you studied this. And Pharaoh's fear resulted in horrible behavior. He told the midwives not to let the baby boys live. And then when that didn't work, he said, throw them all in the river. Did this man have a heart after God? No, not at all. We know that Moses was rescued, and he grew up in that Pharaoh's home. And when that Pharaoh learnt of the, the killing that Moses did, when he killed a slave driver, he wanted to kill Moses. So Moses had to leave. And while Moses was in Midian, we learned that while he was away, that Pharaoh died. So we're on to our third Pharaoh. This Pharaoh... God actually says specifically to Moses, God says that he knows that this new king will not let the Israelites go unless a mighty hand compels him. So what's the state of this king's heart? Is it hard? Yeah. There is a heritage of hard-hearted pharaohs, okay? God knows this new king, and like the one before, he is not compelled toward God, but against. In chapter 5, just a couple weeks ago, you learned what Pharaoh really thought about God. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And then things just get worse for the Israelites, right? There are already slaves, but he even makes their, heart, their work harder. He takes away their supplies for their work, and he expects just as much out of them. He's a terrible man. He's a terrible man. We have to remember that. His heart is hard toward God. And God has a plan. He is in control. And he's going to use this hard heart. Well, in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, right before our passage today, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then... I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts I will bring out my divisions, my people the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. I'm wanting to remind you that Pharaoh's heart was hard. He was not for the Lord, but the Lord decided to use him in a powerful way. Ten times we're told that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And why? so that these plagues would occur. God demonstrated his control over Pharaoh's heart, and he got, demonstrates his control over creation. We see these signs at the beginning of this passage, and then nine plagues. And when we read about these plagues, I don't know about you, but my mind, it doesn't shut off, but it somehow protects itself to think of the horrors and how awful it would have been. And right away I go into mom mode, right? I have three kids and I'm just like, if the blood was coming out of the taps, coming out of the shower, in my bottles of water there was blood, how do I wash my kids? How do I give them something to drink if they're thirsty? This is awful. This is so awful. And then we have these frogs, and maybe you're a frog person, maybe not, and you're just like, gross, like this is disgusting. But for these, is for the Egyptians, I don't know if you did any uh, further reading about the, the plagues, but they all had a very significant meaning for the Egyptians. Historians and theologians agree, based on what we've learned about the Egyptian gods, that these were a bit of a slap in the face to the Egyptians. 
the Egyptians had a frog-headed goddess named Heket, and she was a frog, and you didn't kill frogs in Egypt because then you were like decreasing your chances of getting pregnant, and getting pregnant was what women did, right? So when God sent this plague of frogs, and then the frogs die, and there's these heaping piles of stinking, rotting flesh, that would have been a slap in the face. Now, my kids have chores, and three kids, three-week rotation. One week, you're on the dishwasher. The other week, you are on just general tidy-up, the blankets, the, the pillows, and you got a vacuum. And the third week is garbage recycling and compost. Now, they hate that job, but they are for that job because they have been indoctrinated as young children, as I was in elementary school, if you're, yeah, yeah, if you went through schooling in British Columbia in the 80s and 90s, you were indoctrinated into an environmentalism to recycle. And now to compost. They hate the compost, but if I accidentally put a banana peel in the garbage can, I will hear of it. <laughs> so I started to think about this. This is kind of a standard, and for some people, environmentalism is even a religion. So what if you woke up this morning I don't know if the first thing you do is grab reading glasses or your phone, but it's covered in compost. You go into your bathroom, the toilet is full of compost. There are those little white maggots, you know, from the compost bin, flies, a stench throughout your house. Composting seemed like a really good idea. Worshipping the god Heket seemed like a really good idea. It was a slap in the face. Compost throughout your whole house would be a slap in the face. It would be disgusting. These plagues were disgusting. They were painful, and they were horrific for these people. But God used them to demonstrate his control over creation. You read this in your homework and around your tables. You know that the Egyptian magicians could do some of these things too. And that the Israelites experienced some of these plagues as well. Because there's a pretty good chance, ladies, that if you grew up an Israelite, a slave in Egypt, you might have had a little frog goddess in your bedroom. This was a reminder that the frog goddess is not in control. God is in control. We need to believe that God has that much control, and that control is good. Now, over the weekend, if you come to Northview... There was a vision slot Sunday morning, which just meant that we interviewed a couple, the Predators, and they are involved in a ministry called Inasmuch, and they work with refugees. And the one thing I was most encouraged by listening to them, and the one thing that stuck out to me, is how much they trusted in God's control. They casually talked about how they needed a new house for more refugees, so they prayed about it, and they got it. And how they have this long list of things that they need, they don't seem stressed out about it, They'll pray about it, and God will most likely, if it's in his plan, answer those prayers for these refugee people that they're caring for. They demonstrated a trust in God's control just through a four-minute interview. I want you to have that trust. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. This takes time. I'm quite sure the predators did not have bold, 
full of trust prayers when they first started out with inasmuch. It takes time. It's a process. And it's easier said than done. We need to start by acknowledging that God is in control of this world of creation, of human hearts, and we need to turn our hearts toward him. Is your heart, is your heart hard like Pharaoh's? He did not believe that God was in ultimate control. He did not trust God. But do you? Because we are told in the rest of the Bible that if you have a soft heart toward God, if you want to follow him, that means you're called. Like you are for him and he will make you his. In Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Pharaoh didn't knock. Pharaoh didn't ask. Pharaoh was not for God. God controls hearts. He controls creation. He takes action to save his people. And he did that through the hard heart of Pharaoh and through the plagues. But it gets me thinking, did he need to have nine? Right? Like, could he have just got his people out of there after one? Well, the answer to that is in God's reason for why these plagues happened. Throughout this passage, in chapter 7, verse 17, and 10, verse 2, these plagues are done so that you will know that I am the Lord, says God. In 8, verse 1, and 9, verse 1, and 9, verse 13, let my people go so that you may worship me. In 8, verse 22, so that you will know that the Lord I am in this land. 8 verse 10, there is no one like the Lord our God. And in 9 verse 16, he says this about Pharaoh, but I have raised you up for this very purpose. Pharaoh was in that position for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. Do you think all that could have happened with just one plague? We're taught to ask why at a very young age. Put yourself in that person's shoes. I remember being in the grocery store and there might be a grumpy person in front of me and my mom would say, but you never know what bad news they might have gotten today. Remember being told that? Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you need to control your temper because you never know what bad news they might have gotten. And we do this to young children. They throw a banana on the ground. They hit another kid. They take a toy. Why? Why did you do that? You have a friend and she stops communicating with you. You want to know why. You're in high school or college and your boyfriend breaks up with you. You want to know why. And we ask God the same thing. When things don't go our way, especially, we ask God the same thing. Why? When we don't get the job we want. When we get a bad diagnosis from the hospital when we're suffering with chronic pain or depression, or when your children are, or when your spouse is, or when your parents are, or when close friends are, we cry out, why God, why am I having this pain? Why do I have to experience this suffering? So that you worship me. Why did you take my child? Why can't I have a child? 
so that you may know that I am God. And I know we don't always know that in the midst of the situation. We don't always know it tomorrow or in 10 years. But as Christians, we know the answer to the bigger reason. So that God's name is proclaimed in all the earth. Everything that happens, everything that God allows, permits, or directs is so that we know him. It's his means of saving us so that God is known in all the earth. We might not always see God's specific plan for us in each and every situation. But ladies, we need to trust God's control and trust that it's good. His being known is his way to love and save us. On December 30th, 2015, I remember waking up to a bit of shaking. And I wasn't sure if it was in a dream or if it was an earthquake. My mind can get away on me, so I wake up my husband like, did you feel that? He, no, he was sound asleep, didn't feel a thing. So my phone is next to me as my alarm, and I'm like, oh, I'll go on my News 1130 app. I want to know, was there an earthquake? Nothing on the news app. I go on Facebook, five posts. Earthquake, question mark, question mark, question mark. Did anybody feel that? It was on Facebook faster than it was on the news. And it was then confirmed there was a 4.7 earthquake. And I remember feeling it, and I remember thinking, wow, news travels fast. Ladies, these nine plagues were God's Twitter and Facebook and Instagram post. Okay? He, the ancient times were an oral society when information traveled by word of mouth. One plague would not have done it. So why nine? So that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he would be known. It worked. It worked 200 years later. It worked 400 years later. It works today. We see that God is in control of hearts. God is in control of creation. And God's control is good. God knew how to communicate on a massive scale. He is the same God today that he was back then. Only, ladies, we know more. We have the New Testament. The plagues for the Egyptians and the Israelites and the Gideonites and everybody that heard about those plagues did not know about Jesus in the New Testament. And in the same way that God used Pharaoh's hardened heart to show himself through those plagues, he uses the hard hearts of the Jews when Jesus is crucified on the cross to die for our sins. We see God wanting to be known again and again throughout scripture, all pointing to Christ so that we know he sent his son to die for us and that his son raised from the dead and that his son was the redemption piece, the true redemption piece, not getting out of Egypt, but getting into heaven. He's what we need we see the providence of God for the Israelites, and we see the providence of God for anyone who believes in him. We learn about God's control through actions and reasons so that we can think rightly about God. Ladies, it is dangerous to start thinking that the God of the Old Testament isn't the God you want to worship. 
a book came out this week by a pastor and an author and a teacher. His name is Adam Stanley. He has a congregation among six campuses in Georgia of about 38,000 people. And he wrote a book called Irresistible because he thinks Jesus is irresistible, and I agree with him. But he thinks Jesus is a lot more irresistible if we ignore the Old Testament. And so this book is all about unhitching oneself from the Old Testament, all the problems of Christianity because of the Old Testament. The Old Covenant, no, you don't need it. The Old Testament is what makes the New Testament so significant. We have to think rightly about God. The longer you go one degree off of your destination, the further you get away from your destination. Ladies, our true destination is not Toronto or Buffalo or London. If you are a believer, your true destination is heaven. This passage should cause us to think more rightly about God, to trust in God's control, trust in God's providence, and surrender to him. If you don't know yet, if you don't yet know Jesus as your savior, and you're figuring this all out, this God calls you to repent, to say, I'm sorry for my sins. And understand that he made a way for you to be holy and right before him through the death of his son, Jesus. I want us to think rightly about God. God is in control. So one of the ways that we're going to do this this morning is by focusing on who God reveals himself to be in the Bible. You are doing this. You are studying thoroughly. You're here this morning. We need to continue to submit humbly and pray continuously. So we're going to listen to a song. And this song is actually right from the Bible. It's a woman singing the Hebrew names of God and then the English translation. So I don't want you to write right now. I just want you to close your eyes and listen to this song and acknowledge and praise God for who he is through the words of this song because these words reveal who Christ is in Scripture. They reveal who God is in the Old Testament. Okay, and then I'll move us on to the next thing. So just listen.
God, you are the creator. You're the beginning and the end. You are God most high. You are a shepherd that calls us to you. You sanctify. And you are worthy of all our praise. God, you see us. You provide for us. You heal us. You are a God of peace and you are everlasting. We praise you. <laughs> 